Good morning and a warm welcome to all who are gathered here for worship this morning, especially a warm welcome to those who are visiting with us as we gather in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to give praise to the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Worship is a holy conversation in which God speaks to us and then we respond to Him. God speaks to us in His Word, in the greeting, in the, doc, uh, in the benediction. He speaks to us through the sermon. We respond to Him in our songs, in our offerings, in our prayers. And so this morning our service begins with a call to worship, and I'm going to ask you to please stand to receive that call from your Lord. We take this call to worship from some of the songs that we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. In verse 8, we hear about the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. They are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whatever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will They existed and were created. Congregation, in whom is your help? Lift up your hearts, congregation, and receive the greeting of your Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, and all God's people said, Amen. Congregation, we respond by turning in our songbooks to number 33. Number 33. In the call to worship, it says that you are the one who created all things. Psalm 33 is a psalm in which we recognize God as the creator the one who has created all things, and we rejoice in his creation and the fact that he has made the world. Number 33, we sing stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
For the reading of God's law, we turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We find the same pattern in the New Testament that we find in the Old. In the Old Testament, when God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, this is how I've saved you. This is what I've done for you. Now this is how you must live. When we come to the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are really all about, here is how I have saved you. This is what I have done to bring you into my family. And since this is what I've done for you, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are really, this is how you ought to live. So congregation, we come to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning to know what does God want us to do? How should we live? And as we read this, we also realize ways in which we have fallen short. Let me begin at verse 1, where he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And how should we then walk? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, what does that look like in practical terms? If you turn to the, uh, a little, turn the, to the next page, down to verse 17, listen to what he says about how we ought to live our lives. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him. And we're taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." 
Notice how that last verse ends with the same summary that Jesus gave when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourselves, for it is on these two commandments that depend all the law and the prophets. Congregation, there we see God's will for our lives. We understand what we are to do and how we are to live because of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. But as we read those requirements, we also recognize that we have failed and therefore need to confess our sins before Him. Congregation, let us use Psalm 147, our singing number 147a, to make a confession about how good God is to gather us to Himself. You notice particularly stanza two. He heals the brokenhearted ones and binds their wounds and pain. He counts the stars by number. He calls each of them by name. The stanza one just before that says that he is the one who brings the exiles home. Isn't it good of God to bring us back to himself and to know that he does that even through meetings that we are engaged in today in the worship of God. Number 147a, we sing stanzas one and two, and then on the opposing page you find stanza five. One, two, and five of number 147a.
Congregation, we know that God forgives our sins. We know that we are welcomed back into His presence because of the testimony of His Word. We just sung that God builds up Jerusalem. In other words, He builds up God's people. He, he draws people like you and me back from the paths of sin into a relationship with Him. We have that spoken about in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How have you received that congregation? It's been through the blood of Jesus Christ. Is there anyone here today who is under the burden of sin, a sense of guilt, a sense of shame? You need to know that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to wash away the guilt. And by the Spirit of God, He can take away that shame. Are you trying to fulfill your own righteousness? Are you trying simply to be better and kind of clean yourselves off a little bit so that you'll be respectable in the community? Or are you taking your sins to God and saying, God, I've sinned against you in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions? And I come to you for forgiveness because I'm a dirty man. That's how we deal with our sin congregation. Not just sweeping it under the carpet. No, you are clean in the blood of Jesus. And so based on this scripture passage and the authority of the office that has been given to me, I declare to you, congregation, that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who trust and believe in Him can be assured that your sins are fully forgiven and you are right with God. Now, take that and receive it by faith. It is in that hope that we um, also anticipate coming to the Lord's table next Sunday. And so, if you turn to your insert in your bulletin, you have the celebration for the Lord's Supper, and we read that now in order to prepare our hearts for coming to the table of the Lord next Lord's Day. We read this not out of custom. We don't do it out of superstition. We don't simply do it from tradition. We do it in order that we might be rightly taught. And so, listen carefully. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we hope next Lord's Day to celebrate the blessed sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are called to prepare our hearts by rightly examining ourselves. For the Apostle Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat and and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
Therefore, you should examine your life and considering your own sin and the wrath of God against it, be sure that you humble yourself in repentance before God. Examine your heart to be sure that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, believing that your sins are forgiven wholly by grace because of our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Finally, examine your conscience to be sure that you resolve to live in faith and obedience before your Lord and in love and peace with your neighbor. We also have this warning. God will surely receive at the table of his son all who truly repent of their sins, believing in Jesus Christ as their savior and desire to do his will. All those, however, who do not repent, who do not put their trust in the Lord Jesus and who have no desire to lead a godly life, you are warned according to the command of God to keep They are commanded to keep themselves from the Holy Sacrament. If any one of us is living in disobedience to Christ and in enmity with his neighbor, he must repent of his sin and reconcile himself to his neighbor before he comes to the Lord's table. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, according to 1 Corinthians 11. This solemn warning is not designed, however, to discourage penitent sinners from coming to the Holy Sacrament. We do not come to the supper as though we were righteous in ourselves, but rather to testify that we are sinners and that we look to Jesus Christ for our salvation. Although we do not have perfect faith, do not serve and love God with all our hearts, and do not love our neighbors as we ought, We are confident that the Savior accepts us at his table when we come in humble faith, with sorrow for our sins, and with a will to follow him as he commands. And since it is necessary for us to come to the sacrament in good conscience, we urge any who lack this confidence to seek from the minister or any elder of this church such counsel as may quiet his conscience or lead to the conversion of his life. All then who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who earnestly desire to lead a godly life, ought to accept the invitation now given and come with gladness to the table of their Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, You who have given us the gospel of Jesus Christ and provided a most wonderful communion with him through the mystery of the sacrament, we need your grace to enable us to prepare our hearts for the reception of the Holy Communion. To all who sincerely believe in your Son and truly repent of their sins, grant assurance of your gracious readiness to receive and bless them in the supper of their Lord. To all who have not yet repented and have not yet put their trust in the Lord Jesus, give to them a restraining fear of this supper, lest their condemnation be greater. But have mercy upon these and grant them grace to repent of their sins and seek their salvation in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess, O Father, that we have all offended your majesty and we all deserve your judgment. We have transgressed in our thoughts. We have sinned against you with our words. 
And we have practiced sin by our very lives and its behavior. Truly there is no strength in us. Be merciful, O God, and grant us your pardon. And let us come to the sacrament and the joy of your forgiving love. It is through Jesus Christ that we have this confidence because of his blood and his Holy Spirit. O Lord our God, we thank you then that we might meet here today. That you, by your forgiving love, have agreed that you would meet with us and even have invited us into your presence. Father, we pray that you would be with us as a congregation, that we might be a light to the world in which we live. Dear God, we pray particularly for those in this congregation who are living in unrepentant sin, who have deliberately gone against you and against your ways. Father, may you be merciful to them and let them no longer continue in that path, but bring them back as you did the prodigal son. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that they might know the weight and the guilt of their sin, but also may they come to see the joy of the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may they know the power of your Spirit at work within them, drawing them back to you. Father, may they submit to you and to your will. We pray, dear God, for the leadership of this congregation. We thank you for the pastor and for his family. Father, may you bless them during this time of vacation. May you refresh them and may they return to their stations in life with renewed vigor. We thank you, dear God, for the elders of this congregation whom you have given to be overseers, to look out for the well-being of this congregation, to ensure that the word of God is being faithfully proclaimed, but also to nurture those who are hurting, those who are going astray, those who need counsel. Father in heaven, may you give to the elders much grace and wisdom and patience and love that they might rightly represent you, the Lord Jesus Christ, in their office of elder. We thank you, dear God, for the deacons. May you bless them in their responsibilities as they take up the offerings from week to week, but also as they disperse them. And where they have opportunity to give those funds directly to those in need, Father, may they do so with words of encouragement, words that build up so that they in their particular office might be representatives of the tender mercy of Jesus Christ for those in need. Father, we pray for each member of the congregation from the oldest down to the youngest. Father, as each one takes up their station within the congregation, not only their presence here at Sunday worship, but also as they go about their stations in life, whether it be as a son or a daughter in the home, whether it be as a husband or wife in the family, whether it be as an employer or an employee in the marketplace, whether it be, Heavenly Father, as a student in the schoolroom. Father, we pray that each member, as they return to their stations tomorrow morning, may it be that they would serve you diligently so that by their faithful witness, By walking in a way that is right and true and pure, may it be a testimony to the world around them to encourage fellow believers, but also to be a witness to the watching world that your grace is indeed supernatural and amazing. Father, might we as congregational members be be servants within your kingdom so that we might take on the role of the priest 
not giving ourselves in order to make payment for our sins, but giving ourselves as a thank offering to you to say thank you, Lord God, for giving us the great salvation in Jesus Christ and for pouring out your spirit among us. And we pray, dear God, that we might fight valiantly as soldiers within your kingdom, fighting against sin and temptation in our own lives, but also helping those beside us, our fellow soldiers. Father, may we come alongside of them, calling them to faithfulness to you, encouraging them when they fall, and also drawing them back to you through instruction and, where necessary, exhortation. O Heavenly Father, we then pray that you would bless us as a congregation today as we have gathered here now for worship. May you receive our praises. May you accept our prayers and petitions. And may you hear us for the sake of Jesus Christ our blessed Savior and Lord. Amen. Congregation, we now look to God for our direction, and as we prepare our hearts to open His Word this morning, we turn in our songbooks to Selection 1. Selection 1. That man is blessed. And indeed, this first song in our songbooks speaks about that blessed man. I want you to notice particularly where the blessed man ends up. We as a congregation, as individual Christians, we are on a journey. Your houses are not your homes. They are simply a temporary dwelling place. We are on our way to the heavenly city, and we find that displayed for us here in Psalm 1. Notice it says... In stanza four, the wicked, like the driven chaff, are swept from off the land. They shall not gather with the just, nor in the judgment stand. They cannot stand on judgment day. And so we read in verse five, uh, in the fifth stanza, the Lord will guard the, relch, the righteous well. Their way to him is known. Where are we going to end up? Our desire, our goal, our destination is to end up in the congregation of the righteous in the presence of our God. And how do you do that? It is by meditating and delighting in the Word of God. That's what this song is about. Please stand to sing the five stanzas of 1A.
I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Let me also draw your attention to the fact that in your bulletin handout, in your uh, announcement booklet, you'll find an outline for this morning's sermon. On the, uh, at the very center of your uh, booklet, you also find um, Psalm 148, and I have adapted it slightly to represent um, some of the emphases of this psalm in terms of the way that it's laid out, the way that it's structured, and even some of the words that, um, um, that are repeated, particularly the word hallelujah and hallel. It's a Hebrew term, but you're already familiar with it. Uh, you've sung songs with the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is the command simply to praise. Y'all praise. And who do you praise? You praise Yah, and Yah is short for Yahweh, or in some of the older translations, it was Jehovah. And that's why this morning's sermon is entitled, The Cosmic, in other words, worldwide, universe-wide, cosmic, hallelujah, chorus. With that in mind, I'm going to read from Psalm 148 from the ESV. If you want to follow along on the insert of your bulletin, it may help you, but I'm going to refer to that in the course of our sermon, and so you'll be able to see that then. But for now, hearing God's Word, Psalm 148, hear God's Word and receive it with a believing heart. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all depths, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples. Princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people, praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him, praise the Lord. There ends the reading of God's word. May he also add his blessing to it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know what plans you have for the memorial holiday tomorrow, but what would you think? What would you think if I told you that I was going to be grilling hot dogs and hamburgers with Elon Musk? That might sound pretty impressive to some of you. But suppose you are among family tomorrow and uh, maybe rubbing shoulders with your neighbors and they say, what did you do yesterday? Would you be just as impressed to say, 
I met God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, in the presence and in the community of God's people. Congregation, we tend to have high regard for certain people in our world today, either because of their wealth or their fame, whether it be in sports or whether it be on the screen. But how often do we stop to think of the greatness and the fame of God and the privilege that we have to know Him? When you thought of coming to worship this morning... Was it on your mind when you crawled out of bed this morning, you said, I can't wait to get to worship. I can't wait to sing the praises of God with the congregation whom God has gathered together. Well, that's the kind of tone that we have in Psalm 148. I want you to show show you, congregation, the structure, first of all, of Psalm 148. Some of you might feel that this is somewhat of a technical detail, but let me just give you this little tidbit about your personal Bible reading as well. Every single passage in the Bible, every single passage in the Bible has a certain structure that it follows. And that structure, if you begin to recognize it, oftentimes will highlight a particular emphasis. And the emphasis helps us to recognize the message. So to understand the message of Psalm 148, we need to back up and see the structure. And what's neat about Psalm 148 is the structure is quite obvious. Let me show you it. If you notice in verse 1, when you get past the Alleluia or the praise the Lord, and I'm looking at the insert of your bulletin right here, and I'm going to use this language, this adaptation. I want you to notice that the first main line says, Hallelujah from the heavens. Notice I've put in bold print, from the heavens. Then drop down to verse 7. It says, Hallelujah, from the earth. Do you see the two main parts, the two main segments of Psalm 148? It is praise from the heavens and it is praise from the earth. That's the structure. Now, I said the structure illustrates the emphasis. Where's the emphasis? Let me show you the emphasis. It's not until you get down to verse 5. Verse 5. Notice what it says. Let them hallelujah the name of Yahweh. And then notice that same line is repeated in verse 13. Let them hallelujah the name of Yahweh. So we have the structure, the heavens and the earth, but the emphasis is found in these two lines that are repeated. What's the emphasis of Psalm 148 and what is the message? It is, we are to praise the name of our God whose name is Yahweh. And that's the end of the sermon. Except we we still have a bit of an outline in front of us. So let me work this out a little bit more. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. 
The first point here is hallelujah, and we should probably add in there hallelujah Yahweh from the heavens. And how do you hallelujah, how do you praise God from the heavens? Well, notice in verses 1 through 4, we praise God by commanding creation. We praise God by commanding creation. Did you notice that? In verses uh, 2 through 4. Notice it says in verse 2, Hallelujah, Him, all His angels. Hallelujah, Him, all His hosts. Hallelujah, Him. You see, that's the command form. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. And it's repeated again and again and again. But here's the difficulty. When is the last time you deliberately commanded angels and said, Now you angels... Praise God. We don't tend to think that way because we don't see angels with our eyes. And yet that's what the psalmist does here, doesn't he? He says, all you angels, those of you who have access to God, those of you who are in heaven, praise God. And and the psalmist commands the individual angels, but then when he mentions... Praise Him, or Hallelujah, Him, all His hosts. Host is a military term. A military term that refers to a large army or armies of angels. Now we could take the time and we could notice from Ephesians chapter 3 how it is that the angels are actually studying the church. Did you know, congregation, that angels are very likely present in our, in our midst today, right here, right now, where we cannot see them, but they are watching the church because what they do is they learn something about God from watching you. They learn something about God's grace at work when they see your lives. And so this is, in one sense, a very appropriate thing to do. Praise Him, all you angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. But then we move on to verse 3, and now it starts to get a little bit tricky. Because notice it says in verse 3, Hallelujah, Him, sun and moon. Hallelujah, Him, all you shining stars. These are inanimate objects. They don't have life. They don't have brains. They don't think. They don't speak. They're not persons. They don't have personality. So how do you command the sun? Sun, praise God. Well, in one sense, what we're really saying is, I want God to use the sun to make His name great on planet Earth today. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we learn that the sun, the moon, and the stars were set in order by God in order to be the clocks and the calendars for our world. Think about the centrality of the sun. Let's suppose the pulpit here is the sun. And let's suppose my arm represents, my fingertip represents the North Pole and my elbow the South Pole. In relationship to the sun, this is June 21 because it's at the peak of summer. It is uh, when the sun is at its highest point, it's the longest day. 
But if we continue to go around the sun, by the time we get here, it is now September 21, and now the days and the nights are about even, and the temperatures are getting cooler, because where we're at here in the northern hemisphere, the temperatures get cooler because we're a little further away from the sun. We have a little less direct sun. By the time we get to this side of the sun, now, if we're living in the northern hemisphere... Now it's December 21, and we are further away from the sun. Do you see how the sun brings glory to God simply by being at the center of our solar system, and our, our weather and our seasons are set by our movement around the sun? Not only that, but if we consider this to be the sun and the earth is rotating, what happens? We have day and night. We have a new day. Each time the sun comes up, from our perspective, the sun comes up, when in reality, the sun, the earth is simply rotating. And as it moves, it gives us day and night, day and night. In one sense, God's orderliness is so much in front of our eyes that we begin to take it for granted. I don't think any of the kids went to bed last night thinking, Dad, do you think the sun's going to come up tomorrow? No, we just assume that it would come up. Why? Because God has made it that way. So that when we say hallelujah from the sun and the moon and the stars, what we're really saying is God made these things be so clear in our minds that we see that you have not only set the days and the seasons, that is the summer and the fall and the winter and the spring, but you have also set the months. How do you measure a month? A month is approximately the time that it takes for the moon to go around the earth. Several years ago, I remember vacationing out on the, on the west coast. And in one of the little drawers of our cabin, there was, a, there was a schedule of the tide of the ocean. And it was mapped out for... For years, it was like a five-month calendar. And for every single day of the year, for the next five years, it would tell you when the tide came in, when the tide went out. Well, did you know that it is the movement of the, of the moon and its placement in, in relationship to the earth that affects the tides? So when we say... Praise the Lord from the heavens, that is, praise Him from the sun, the moon, and the stars. Let us see so clearly that when the moon comes out, well, we're about to a new moon, so you're not going to see it probably tonight, but in about 14 days, when you see the full moon, you say, look what God has done. We're really praying that God would open our eyes to see and to behold um, His handiwork in these details of life. Hallelujah from the the sun, the moon, and the stars. But then if you go on, if you go on in verse 4, Hallelujah, Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Remember at creation, God said, let there be an expanse between the waters above and the waters below. So that as we look out into the heavens, we say, we're trying to think of the highest, highest, highest place. 
Several years ago, NASA sent out a space probe and it's still going out into outer space and it keeps sending pictures back to planet Earth. But it's been going now for years and it has not yet seen the end of the universe. You begin to get a sense of how great our God is. And so we begin, we begin by commanding. How do we praise? We praise God by commanding the creation. But that leads then, congregation, to developing a conviction for praise. How do we develop that conviction? Notice that verse 5, this is the key phrase, and if you're marking up your bulletins, I would put a a box around verse 5, and I would put a box around verse 13, because here's the central thing. Let them, that is, the angels, his host, the sun, moon, and stars, the highest heavens, let them, hallelujah, the name of Yahweh. And when we talk about name, we're not necessarily uh, focusing on the letters that make up God's name. But when we talk about name, we're talking about reputation. When you go shopping for clothes, oftentimes you look for the name brand. Why? Because the name brand has a certain quality to it. And so when you see the name on the label, you say, yeah, that's what I want. What we're talking about here is the reputation of God. The reputation of God. And what is his reputation? Well, look at the second part of verse 5. Why should, we, why, should, why should they make the name of Yahweh great? Why should they praise God's reputation? For this very reason. For he commanded and they were created. Isn't that amazing? Here we have a ball of fire 93 million miles away from planet Earth that heats our Earth every day, causes the plants to grow, gives us light to do our work. And God set that in the heavens. How long did it take him to create the sun? He said, let there be the sun, moon, and stars. And they appeared like that. When's the last time you tried to create anything? Whether it be a meal in your kitchen, or whether it be something, uh, uh, a building project, or maybe doing your lawn, it took a while, didn't it? And God simply said, let there be a sun. And there was a sun. Does that impress you? More than Elon Musk? This is the God that we worship, isn't it? Not only that, but notice what we read in verse 6. It says, And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. When we get to our calendars, and we turn our calendars to June in just a couple of days, and when we see in the middle of June, it says, June 21, first day of summer, we ought to think not, well, now the temperatures are going to be nice, and we can really enjoy the, the, the weather. We ought to say, God did it again. God set the earth in motion around the sun and and He did it again. Summer came in the same way that it did last year and five years ago and ten years ago and twenty years ago. God did it again. Because of this, verse 6, He established them forever. He gave a decree and He said, this is the way it's going to be. Or if any of you observe the stars and you notice the constellations, 
Unfortunately, astrologers have used that to make a bunch of superstitions calling astrology. But did you know that our calendar makers look at those constellations to see where the sun is in relationship to those constellations in order that they might know when the months are? And that is important to us, especially those of you who are farmers, because if you have some nice temperatures in, in February and you don't have a calendar to go by, you say, well, let's get our, our crops in and You get the crops in, they come up, and boom, you have frost, and it kills them. But if you say, you know, I'm the farmer that's going to play things safe, and I'll just wait until we have a really long period of nice weather, then I'll put the crops in, what happens? You get them in too late, and they don't have enough time to develop and mature. So why is it that we can can set our calendars and plan according to it? It's because God has given a decree. Does that decree really matter to you? It ought to. Because your very life, your very life is planned according to that decree. You look at your calendars. You have written things on specific dates. Because you know that that date is coming. How do those dates come? It comes by God keeping his decree. So there you have, praise the Lord. Hallelujah way from the heavens. But now we come to hallelujah from the earth. Hallelujah from the earth. And here, what the psalmist helps us to do is to develop a God-centered view of the world. He helps us to develop a God-centered view of the world. Look at verse 7. He says, hallelujah, way from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Notice in the first half of the psalm, he took us as high as he could go. He said, you heavens of above the heavens, the highest heavens. Now he says, I want to start as deep as we can go. I'm going to go into the, the depths where you have great sea creatures and all deeps. What are some of those great sea creatures? Well, you've got the whales, but also back in the days where there were still dinosaurs, and perhaps there are still dinosaurs in the sea, the plesiosaurs, these huge, huge animals. Job saw them. We read about them in, in, in the book of Job. God made these animals huge. But he goes on to say in verse 8, he moves from the animals to fire and hail, Right? Opposites. Fire burns up. Hail is ice. You have snow and mist, or it could also be smoke. You have stormy winds, but notice this God-centered view of the world. When he thinks of the stormy wind, he thinks of it as a wind that is fulfilling God's word. And if you want to know about that, you can simply go back to Psalm 147 where he describes the wind at the end of the, of the winter and how the warm wind blows and causes all the snow and the ice to melt. So next time there's a windy day and you say, oh, it is so windy. Instead of complaining about it, ask yourself, I wonder what God's purposes are in having the wind today because God has a purpose in the winds that blow. And if you know anything about meteorology or about uh, the weatherman and the way in which they figure things out, wind is a big part of it. Notice, do you have this 
view of the world that always has God at the center of it. You go on to verse to the next verse. He talks in verse 9, mountains and all hills. Mountains, what are mountains good for? Well, it's mountains uh, where the snow gathers and collects and, and all through the summer that, that snow melts and continue, continues to bring water down into the rivers. Then it mentions fruit trees and all cedars. Fruit trees. Next time you have a banana or next time you have an apple or a peach or an orange, think to yourself, this came from a tree that God made. This is, this is food from God. And what about the cedar trees? The cedar trees especially are, are large and sturdy and strong and so... You cut them down and you make boards out of them and you build houses and you, you build other things. You see what he's getting at. All of our lives depend upon God, our food, our homes. So when you walk into your home, don't simply think, well, uh, a carpenter really did a nice job on this one. Or maybe you don't like your house and the carpenter really uh, fudged on this one. Instead, look at it and you say, look at these materials Without God having given these materials, we wouldn't have a place to live. You see how he's developing this God-centered view of the world. But then we go on to verse 10. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Boys and girls, have you ever wondered how, how beasts and birds and the creepy crawly bugs... How do they praise God? By doing what God designed them to do. You watch the robins out there picking worms out of the ground. And you say to yourself, that bird is doing exactly what it was designed to do. When's the last time, boys and girls, you saw a robin plucking out a worm from the ground and you thought, boy, I sure wish I could get that worm and eat it. And the reason you haven't is because you're not a bird and God didn't design you to eat worms. But God created the robins to eat worms. He created robins to pick up those worms and bring them to their little babies in the nest. Do you see the design of God? We need to see it more clearly in all of creation. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Doesn't your mind just begin to explode with say, look what God did here and look what God did here and look what God did here. Look at these animals. Look at these plants. Look at these things. He goes on, you see, in the next verse, because he doesn't stop with the animals. Now he gets to be a little bit more personal. And he says, kings of the earth and all peoples. In other words, he's thinking of kingdoms and everybody, the kings and everybody under them, princes and all rulers of the earth. When you read the headlines, congregation, when you read the headlines today, do you wring your hands? When you look at what's going on in the Ukraine. When you look at other places in unrest in our world today, when you consider the politicians that are uh, in Washington or perhaps uh, downstate in Indiana, do you wring your hands and say, oh, it's just going, turning so bad? When's the last time you said to yourself, God is even above the kings. He's above the governor. He is above the president of the United States. He is even above the Congress and and the Senate. And our God is even over Putin 
in Russia. Then he goes on into verse 12. Young men and maidens. We don't usually use the term maidens, but really what he's talking about. Young men and young ladies. In other words, both male and female. And then he goes on to say another, another dimension. So male and female, but then also the old and the young. Together, old men and children. From the, from the oldest of the spectrum down to the youngest. All of them praise God. How is it that your baby praises God? You know, maybe as a mother you get tired of changing diapers. But have you ever considered how wonderful God made your child, even though their child, that child isn't old enough to understand any biology, the digestive system works. God is even being praised when the digestive system of your child works that you have to change a dirty diaper. Congregation, you begin to see how, how we are to develop this view of the world that is God-centered. Well, that leads us to verse 13 now. And we are to recognize God's superior reputation. Here we come back to that key line in the, in the psalm, verse 13. Remember, it's the same as verse 5. Let them, hallelujah, the name or the reputation of Yahweh. Who? Well, all the way from the great sea creatures in the, in the depths of the oceans to fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, mountains, hills, fruit trees and cedars, beasts and all the animals, kings and princes, young men, young ladies, old men and children. Let all of them praise the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something here. Notice how the, the four Statement is different. Back in verse 5, it said, let them praise the Lord. Why? For he commanded and they were created. Now, in verse 13, it says, let them hallelujah the name or the reputation of Yahweh. For what reason? For his name, that is, his reputation alone is exalted. What does that mean? His name alone is exalted. One of the things that Hebrew poetry does is it explains, oftentimes will explain the line by giving another line, by saying either the same thing a little bit differently or by having a contrast. Look at what we read in the next line of verse 13. His majesty. And I lined it up in your, in your outlines there so that his majesty is lined up with his name. His reputation is His majesty. And notice, His majesty is above earth and heaven. As if to say, we just take, took a look at what God has done on the earth, verses uh, 7 through 12. Before that, in verses 1 through 6, we had seen what God had done in the heavens. And if you think this is great, God's name, God's reputation is higher than anything here on earth. And it's higher than anything in the highest of the heavens. He is in a category of one. Oftentimes when you see the, the sports, a team will put up their finger, right? We are number one. The psalmist is saying there is no other number one except for God. God is higher than anything in all of creation. 
His name alone deserves the attention. So, what would you think? What would you think, congregation, if I told you that Lionel Messi was going to be my son's soccer coach? Or what if I told you that LeBron James is doing a basketball camp in our town and he has asked me to help organize it? We say, very impressive, but, but what about the things of God? Well, we've seen some very impressive things, but I want to make this very practical to you. And so we end up in verse 14. In verse 14. And this is the last part of our sermon, and that is Hallel. Hallel for his people. Remember, Hallel is the word for praise. That almost catches us by surprise, doesn't it? We have Hallelujah way from the heavens, Hallelujah way from the depths of the earth, and now, what a strange turn of affairs. Hallel for the people of God. Notice three things here, congregation. First of all, first of all, I want you to notice our strength in Jesus. Our strength in Jesus. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. And I think 14 is intended to be kind of a match to verse 6. Right? In verse 6, what did he do about the heavenly beings? And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. But what has he done here on planet earth? That was in the heavens, but what about down here on planet earth? In verse 14 it says, he has raised up a horn for his people. Boys and girls, do you know what a horn is? We're not talking about a musical instrument. We're talking about those things on a bull's head, right? Those things that have a pointer coming off of a bull's head. That was the bull's strength. With his head, he would charge somebody. And with his horns, uh, he would be very impressive and powerful. I want you to notice something here. What is this horn. Turn back with me to Psalm 92, verse 10. Psalm 92, verse 10. We have another reference to the horn, and because of Hebrew parallel poetry, we get an idea of what that means. Chapter 92, verse 10. It says, but you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. So when I told you horn is a picture of a wild ox's horn, it is a picture or a symbol of strength. That's one of the things about poetry. When I was a boy, I never cared much for poetry. I, I just like people to tell it to me straight. But do you see what poetry does? Poetry makes this image in our mind so that, yeah, you can talk about strength, but when you compare it to the horn of a wild ox... Would you want to get into a pen with a wild ox that's got horns on his head? Not me. But that's the picture that we have in mind. Now, I call it the strength of Jesus, and I'll show you that in just a minute, but let me do so by going to the next uh, line here. 
And, and that is the power in Jesus, or excuse me, the praise in Jesus. If we go back to verse 14, and especially if you look at the outline in your bulletin or the Psalm 148, notice how I lined up those last three lines. You see how for, for his people, for all his, for the children. You notice how they all line up? Notice verse 14, it talks about the horn for his people. Notice how the word horn matches with the word halal. Halal. If the horn is the image, what is the reality? The horn is the metaphor. Halal is the reality. And what is that halal? Here's where I want to turn, have you turn with me to Psalm 132 where the horn is mentioned once again, right? So if the horn is like that of a wild ox, that's what it is like, not a real horn, but like that. Psalm 132, verse 17, spells out that horn. Psalm 132 is a psalm of ascents that the Israelites sang when they went up to Zion, when they went up to the, to the temple in order to bring their sacrifices and praises to God. But it was also the headquarters of the nation of Israel, and this is what it says in verse 17, there, that is in Jerusalem, I will make a horn to sprout for David. Does that mean that somewhere over David's grave, this this ox horn is going to start sprouting out like a tree coming out of the ground? No, the horn is symbolic. Symbolic of what? Look at the next line in Psalm 132, verse 17. He says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Here's another image. But if you go back to the history books, each time when, uh, there are various times when the line of David fell into sin, God said, I'm not going to destroy the line of David because I have promised that there would be a lamp. In other words, he's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. What is the horn of David? What is the lamp of David? It is the coming of Jesus Christ in his family line. Boys and girls, that's why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the line of David. So what are we getting at here in verse 14 of Psalm 148? He has raised up a horn for his people. In other words, he has raised up strength. And what is that strength? It is praise, right? Hallel for all his steadfast loved ones. And I've used the term here uh, because in our, uh, in our text, it uses this term, right? It uses all his saints. But the word for saints is the same word that is translated in the English Standard Version as steadfast love. These are the steadfast loved ones. These are the ones whom God has loved and those who have responded in faith. And what has He done? He has given them praise. He doesn't praise them for who they are, but He praises them by who they're associated with. I've mentioned some great names so far today. LeBron James and Elon Musk and Lionel Messi. If I were to hang around these guys, people in the world would think that I'm important 
But you see, it's the importance of who I associate with. What has God done for you, congregation? What has He done for the church of Jesus Christ? It is by our, not only association, but our identity with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what makes you great. That is what gives you a sense of glory. That is what makes you important. And congregation, I want you to get this because in our world today, people are being very confused and they're trying to find their identity in some other area, either in their accomplishments or their, uh, or their looks or their reputation. They're looking for it in themselves and so they try to define themselves in a variety of ways. Dads and moms in particular... As your children are growing up, and let me say this to you who are teenagers, as you're trying to find your place in this world, what is it that makes you important? It's not how good a grade you get in school, though that's important. It's not in how good you are at sports, but if you're good at it, that's great. It's not in the kind of job you get or how much money you get paid, though that's important for supporting your family. Your identity is to be found in who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 14 is emphasizing, you see. What is our praise? Our praise is in Jesus. It is because of who we are in Him and what we have become in Him. And that leads us to the last thing in your outline, and that is the nearness in Jesus. Go back to Psalm 148. Notice you have a horn for His people, Halal for his steadfast ones. And now there is nothing before the four. In other words, I want you to tell you who his people are. His people are those who live in steadfast love with God. And what else do we know about? They are the children of Israel. And the emphasis is on those who are near him. You see, congregation, our relationship with God is not defined by our heritage, though our heritage can be very beneficial for it. No, what is important about our relationship with God is that through Jesus Christ, we are near to Him. In Jesus Christ, we can talk to God at any moment of the day. When you're driving down the road, when you're hoeing the potatoes, when you're carrying out the groceries, whatever the case may be, you may speak with God because He's near. Congregation, He's here today. You see, this is the cosmic, hallelujah, praise. Who am I? Where do I belong? I belong in God's family. Congregation, where do you belong? You belong in God's family. You are somebody because of who you are in Jesus. But that's not just a label. It's a relationship. We are close to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let that be our reason for being excited about being in worship today, but also about going out into the world tomorrow and being in service to our God. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you that Jesus Christ has come into the world in order that we who are lost sinners might be brought into a relationship with you. And because of that relationship with him, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to recognize the world in a much different way, so that when we look up into the heavens and we see the sun, moon, and the stars, may our hearts overflow with exciting praise to you. Father, when we look at the 
at the animals here in the world, whether it be our pets or the animals out in the pasture. Father, when we look at the plants or when we see the wind and the rain, Father, may we recognize that you are king over these. When we read the headlines in our newspapers, Father, may we immediately recognize that you are king of them all and you are far superior and that your name, your reputation is far above anything in our world, whether on heaven and earth. And then, Heavenly Father, may we stand in awe that you, the one whose name and reputation is greater than all in heaven and on earth, may we count it a great, great privilege that you would stoop to us, that you would send Jesus Christ down from heaven to our plane of living in order to live in our sin-cursed world in order that we might be lifted up to you and that we might be seated in the heavenly places already now in Christ Jesus, who is our head, O Lord our God. May that be what impresses us more than the wealthy people of our world or the talented people of our world. O Lord God, hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. We respond to the ministry of God's Word by turning now in our songbooks to sing about what we've been studying. Turn it with me in your songbooks to number 148A. Number 148A. We sing all five stanzas. <laughs> 